On this podcast of chats with Cliff and Cameron, we continue our conversation about racism in America and how we can take perspective on why this may be really difficult for many people. And it's not just, this is a problem for people over there, um, but we'd really try to look at how this is challenging for each of us as an individual. And like always, when I'm chatting with Cliff, um, I realize things about myself where it's like, oh, yep, still more work to do. And we have a lot to learn. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode where we continue to learn more about ourselves and stumble our way through this really important conversation about race in America. If you're like me, you know your mind can be your best or your worst friend. Our mind is an amazing tool that can do incredible things, but our mind can also create problems out of nowhere. Sometimes our mind keeps recommending the same solutions to problems even when they aren't working. I see this pattern play out as individuals try to overcome their anxiety, depression, or even struggles with pornography using approaches that make sense, but aren't very helpful. This podcast will show you how real researchers and clinicians are changing the way we approach mental health and reveal helpful research-supported principles designed to help real people with real problems. My name is Dr. Cameron Staley, and welcome to the Life After Series Radio. So we're back with my good buddy Cliff, here to continue our dialogue on how to discourse around race and racism, especially for people who are white like myself and Cliff, who are really in this process of learning from each other and learning from good resources. And I think my favorite way to learn is by listening. I've just tried to do a lot more listening to what people are sharing and reading personal accounts online and that's probably been my biggest source of education because I feel like my lived experience and my climate hasn't given me those opportunities. So when I have an opportunity to interact with somebody from a different background or different ethnicity, my first step is like, it's time to listen. Like, I don't have things to really offer to educate. I have a lot of learning to do. Yeah, I think that's an awesome attitude. And goes well with the disclaimer that we should give every time we do one of these which is that and we said it in the first one but we didn't say it in the second one and that is that we're not experts you know mm -hmm. we're fumbling our way through this and we're choosing to put our fumblings out there in case that's helpful to anybody else who's trying to fumble their way through it also yeah i think we need to have that disclaimer every time <laughs> And that was highlighted for me this week. So I've got a good relationship with our international students and our diversity resource center on campus. And they invite me every year to facilitate um, different types of panels that they had. Sure. And this week they did one on student activism. Mm. And, and so here I am facilitating this panel and I've got students from the Middle East, some from Nepal, and then there was a student that was from Idaho, identifies as um, Latina and it's black as well. And these were young people like in their teens and twenties and the things that they were doing and the things that they knew were light years ahead of mine. And so here I am, I'm facilitating because I'm a doctor, I'm a psychologist. And I just sat there just like, I can't believe like the education you already have 
just because of you've had to fight for a voice and a place and you've had to figure out how to articulate your concerns and kind of bridle all that energy and pain and passion and deliver in a way that other people who look like me can actually hear it. Mm. And I was it's just really hard to do. Oh yeah. I was completely floored by these individuals that are almost half my age and like twice as advanced when it came to discourses about race and how to have dialogue around diversity. It was so inspiring, but also a reminder of that. I need to listen. There's so much I need to learn. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Really inspiring that there are people out there like that, that have that knowledge, have those skills to be able to talk about it in ways that people who have different backgrounds than them can actually hear. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for us is like, if we hear it from somebody, but we don't automatically trust them due to the way they look or the way they talk or way they dress, like then I think a lot of times we just kind of turn our ears off or close our mind. I think that's really an automatic process. And maybe the biggest challenge I've seen as we've tried to discourse around different issues is we feel so strongly about a lot of views. And so we have a hard time presenting it in a way that maybe doesn't put people on the defensive. And I've had that experience trying to interact with like family members and neighbors yeah. who look like me. It's like, hey, can we talk about Black Lives Matter or you know, why people are upset about maybe a Confederate flag or some of these monuments that are going down. And sometimes yeah. I'm, I'm just not that well-versed around the issues. And so I talk about it in kind of clumsy ways and it's probably not the easiest for other people to actually hear what I'm saying. Cause it's, it's not coming from like years of thought and experience. It's like, this is what I've been learning the last couple of weeks. Let me share some ideas and thoughts. And it's just not that in depth. So I, I wish I had more of that ability to discourse around things like the monuments and the heritage arguments that for me, I feel like I'm just learning. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I hear a lot about these days. You know, the Confederate flag has become even more of uh, a, a divisive image or symbol, it seems in the last year or so. Um, well, I guess the last couple of years going back to Charlottesville, Virginia, oh, yeah. all of that. Um, but yeah, those, yeah, talk about people getting heated, people having really strong opinions. I think those sorts of things evoke really strong reactions for a lot of folks. Yeah. Yeah, Charlottesville, was that two years ago, three years ago? I honestly can't remember. I kind of want to say it was 2017, but really? I, truly don't know. I truly don't know. Yeah, that incident, like for me, honestly, growing up, the Confederate flag was like a cool flag. It's like, oh, that's interesting. I like the color scheme. It was basically, it looked neat, was like mm. my only association with that flag. Mm. Like growing up out in the West, like I didn't, I never saw a flag, a Confederate flag um, where I grew up. Nobody had it. It was just like, oh, it kind of looks pretty. Um, and then to see people starting to use that flag, like there's somebody that drives around in town that's got that on their vehicle. And it's like something about that just didn't quite feel right. But I didn't really understand that because I don't have an association. I'd say about a year ago, I was chatting with somebody that was from South Carolina, um, which was the first state to succeed from the union. Mm. And he's like, yeah, we're proud of our Confederate flag. And I'm like, pride. Like, I think that flag represents a lot of really strong things. And for a lot of people, it represents 
um, slavery and racism and oppression. Mm. Um, but for others that like, were growing up in the South, like this guy I was chatting with, he's like, that's part of our heritage. That's our culture. It represents who we are. And I struggled to interact with him because I'm like, I think maybe it, it means that for you, but for others, it means something completely different. Mm-hmm. And you're a good person that has no intention in harming other people, but it still might be harming people. Yeah. It's difficult to have that dialogue. He's like, well, that's not how, what it means to me. And it's like, yeah, I get that. But for other people, it might symbolize a lot of hatred and fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the challenging things is that when something means different things to different groups of people, then who gets to ultimately define it and who gets to ultimately decide whether that stays a part of the current times and culture or not. Oh, let me follow up on that then. So historically, who gets to pick if that symbol stays or not? Very good question. Well, I think all throughout history, it's been whoever has the power. And so when we think about like America, the country, you know, was founded in 1776. It's always been white, heterosexual, cisgender men. I think maybe that's what's different and feels uncomfortable for a lot of people, where it's like white people like us have been able to make those decisions. They've been unchallenged. They haven't been thought through. We didn't really need to listen to other voices or groups it's like, we've got the power of the majority, so whatever we do goes. Mm-hmm. And now that's shifting where it's like, we are hearing from more voices and there is more diversity. There is more education and learning. I think it's really uncomfortable for people where their decisions haven't been questioned before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I remember even growing up, people would talk about America as a melting pot. And oh, this, idea, yeah. this idea that different groups, different people from all around the world, different backgrounds would all be put in this one place, which was America. It was the melting pot and it was welcoming of all backgrounds. But it's like, well, I think as I've gotten older, I've come to understand that a little bit differently. It's like on paper, we welcome everyone. But I think really historically, we have not welcomed immigrants. And you can look back in the history and think about like in the 1920s, how did white Americans treat Irish immigrants or at different points in history, how were Italian immigrants treated? And now, you know, for you and me in the time that we grew up, whether you were Irish or Italian or German or whatever, you were just white and you were just American. Like it didn't make any difference to us. Yeah. Um, But I think for people of color who have been immigrants all throughout the history of our country, been a much harder time for them to be able to feel like they have the same sort of voice and acceptance here. I think also historically there's been a leaning where people even talk about Asian immigrants as like the model minority. We want like we as in white America, we want all immigrants to be like Asian immigrants. I think what that comes from is this idea of assimilationism or you know, assimilationist. So, okay, you can come to America, you can move here, you can live here, you can work here, you can pay taxes here, you can become a citizen potentially, but you can only have those rights and privileges if you're willing to play by our rules, if you're willing to integrate into our system. You know, you can't so much be welcomed here if 
you're going to wear your traditional clothing to the business meeting, or if you're going to bring your food that smells weird to the mm-hmm. business potluck or that sort of thing. And I've heard that, like, I remember the melting pot from like third grade social studies. And I love that yeah. idea. And I always get this <laughs> image of like all these different colored crayons coming together. But then in the end, it's like, well, we want all the crayons when they melt to look white. Yes. And yeah. it's like, oh, wait, that's not quite what we meant by that melting pot. And maybe what we want instead of like all the crayons to turn out white is we want a salad bowl. We're like, all the ingredients stay what they were to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's a really rich, diverse kind of salad with different flavors and yeah, different smells, like you said, different textures. But sometimes you'll hear that. It's like, yeah, welcome to America. Don't speak your native tongue, though. Like we right. speak English here. Exactly. It's like, yeah, what are we saying by everyone's welcome, but you got to look and act like us? Yeah. 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 I think you have such a good point about, you know, who decides what stays and what goes. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, that that is beginning to change a little bit in terms of people who are not white heterosexual cisgender men are starting to have their voices recognized a little bit. And so I think that's, and you said this, you know, I think that's really what's creating a lot of the the conflict or the divisiveness that we're experiencing now. I think historically, people who were not white heterosexual cisgender men in America would speak up but they weren't heard at all. Their voices weren't recognized at all. And so it was like those voices were just quieted and then the country moved forward doing what the white heterosexual cisgender men wanted to do. But now that those other voices are actually being recognized, people like you and me are saying, whoa, hold on. Like the path we're on is not working great for everyone. So maybe we need to reevaluate the path that we're on. But I think when you when you say that, like maybe we need to reevaluate the path that we're on, I think that's when you get lots of arguments around patriotism, um, <laughs> around heritage, around my culture, all that sort of stuff. I'll give you an example. Um, I worked at Kansas State University for several years. And so they, you know, every university has like some mottos and slogans and things like that. And one of them at Kansas State University is an acronym for the phrase, every man a wildcat. And so wildcat is the mascot of Kansas State University. So the idea is every man a wildcat. And in theory, that's meant to be an inclusive statement. You know, it's like every part of our campus, everybody here, we're all wildcats. We're on the same team. You know, we're one group. We're we're a collective. But there's been multiple pushes in the last couple of decades to change that slogan to every person a wildcat. Oh, yeah. And when you think about the acronym at Kansas State University, people say EMA, which is, you know, E-M-A-W for every man a wildcat. Well, EMA doesn't mean anything. It's just a weird sounding (laughs) if we can call it that right but if you change it to every person a wildcat then it would be e-paw which e-paw at least has a reference to paw which yeah, has a reference to wildcat so it's like in my mind it actually fits better to say <laughs> e-paw than e-ma but you would be amazed at the backlash when you say like we should change this and people have all those same arguments that you hear around monuments being taken down or around the confederate flag you know it's like that's my heritage that's my culture that's who i am that's tradition you're trying to steal my memories from me you want to degrade my past you want to erase me from the history books like whoa 
these really intense reactions, people saying, I'll stop giving money to the school if you change the slogan, like just, just changing one word, changing one word of a slogan. Yeah. Whoa. And even the athletics department, this is what I heard the last time there was a really big push to change. It was like eight or 10 years ago. And even the athletics department finally came out and said, we're not going to do it because the, the cost, the financial cost of rebranding is too much. Wow. Yeah. So we're psychologists, Cliff. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we do that? Like, as I was listening to you, I'm thinking like, because those words we get thrown like heritage and patriotism and tradition and culture my initial reaction is like yeah you can't get rid of those things and destroy those mm-hmm. things those are good things that's what makes people meaningful and and worthwhile and that is our legacy but i don't think that's the reason why people are struggling with like changing the word and i wonder if it's like we struggle with change we like things the way they are there's a sense of stability Mm-hmm. There's probably also a sense of control. And mm-hmm. I hear this argument quite a bit where it's like, well, if they change that one word or we don't use this flag, what's next? What's next? Yeah. It's almost like this is just the beginning. This is a slippery slope. And sometimes it's like, no, it's just like changing that one word and then we're good. But there's that fear. Of, if I give a little bit, everything's gone. And I wonder if it comes from that place of I'm just not used to being challenged. And this is a new challenge for me, even though it's itty bitty, really small, but it's like, that's so foreign to me. It, it yeah. feels really intimidating. I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts on why that is so hard for people? Such a good question. I, I, wish, I've, I wish I had like a succinct answer in my mind. I really don't. Yeah. I, uh, I think a part of it is that, um, yeah, there, there is a fear because there's a feeling that something is being taken that they don't want to have taken from them. Like, I, I mean, this is a silly analogy, but it's as though somebody like came and knocked on my door and was like, give me $20 or like, give me one of your family photos off your wall. Like, well, no, I don't like, who are you? Why would I give you yeah, one of the yeah. family photos on my wall? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I think that's sort of the reaction that gets elicited. It's like, oh. you're trying to take something of mine and I don't feel I have any reason oh. to need to give it to you. Or I don't see how this thing benefits you. I think those are elements of it. I also think that there is... I don't know, like some tunnel vision that happens because yeah. one of the things I realized at K-State is that they even they even have these up around town. There's a lot of school pride there because it's a college town. So you go around the city and everything's purple because that's like the primary color for K-State. They In some of the stores, everything's purple, everything's K-State. And they have these like things on the wall. It's like a frame and it holds these different things in it. And what it is is like a picture of over the course of time, all of the different mascots or representations of the mascot for Kansas State University. So it's Willie the Wildcat is the mascot. And over the years, you know, they've changed the way he was depicted. And so they even display this as like a sense of pride, like, oh, look at, you know, the years of Willie the, Willie the Wildcat, the mascot for us. You know, there's this sense of pride around it. But that's pretty interesting to me because we weren't able as a community at Kansas State University, we weren't able to get on that same idea for changing EMA to EPA because it's like when the mascot changed, you know, and then five or 15 years later, it changed again in terms of how we did depicted it like 
people, I don't know, did they throw fits then? Like, were they up in arms then? Of like, yeah. if you change the way Willie is depicted, all my t-shirts that have the old Willie are gonna have to go in the garbage can. Like, I don't know that that happened. I don't think that that happened. And so yeah. that just is, is interesting to me. Like, why is it okay to change the way Willie the Wildcat is depicted, but it's not okay to update this slogan? so that it's more with the times. Yep. And if, if your point of every man a wildcat is to be collective, then why do you use a word that literally excludes more than half of your community? Yeah. Like, there's just no logic to that. And yet, even though there's no logic to keeping it, there is that really intense emotional reaction to the idea of changing it. Yep. So two things came to mind that you, as I was listening to you, that I hadn't thought about before. Like when you said someone knocks on your door and says, give me your family photo, that's somebody outside of your group, yes. outside of your family. When it's like somebody in your home saying, hey, dad, can I have that family photo in my bedroom? It's like, sure, son. Yeah. So as long as we are different. changing the wildcat mascot, it's okay. But if someone outside of our home says, I want this to be different, it's like, absolutely not. Oh, I think you're spot on with that because it, it, as you say, it makes total sense. It's in-group, out-group. In-group, out-group. Like, yeah, if someone in my family says, gosh, maybe as a family, we should reevaluate the way we do this. Yep. That doesn't feel super threatening. To it me. doesn't at all. Yeah, but if somebody from outside my family knocked on my door and sat my family down and said, y'all should reevaluate the way you do this. Like, yep. whoa, who the heck are you to come in here and yep. tell me what I need to be thinking about or what I need to be doing differently? Yep, those are fighting words. Yeah. And the second thing that came up with, and maybe because you referenced the 20 bucks, is like, I think we view things in our home or our community. I'm using home generally, like our community or university, as we own them. They are our possessions. Yeah. And so, yeah, we can dis distribute our possessions however we want within our home. But if somebody's like, I'm going to distribute those, it's like, absolutely not. We worked hard for these. These are ours. We get to control them. And I wonder if like that slogan has been a possession and like monuments and flags, we own those, those are ours. So another group saying, no, we want to do something else with your possessions. And I think, I wonder if it comes down to that sense of ownership. Yeah. And that goes back to slavery where it's like, we own property and we own people. And that's been like the biggest takeaway for me around the monuments where like some of these monuments are getting torn down Mm -hmm. People are really upset where it's like you're attacking our possessions. Yeah. And I always contrast that with what's more important, people or possessions? Mm. And I think a lot of it comes down to like, hey, the stuff that we own, you can't vandalize that, you can't take that down. But it's like, oh, people are dying though. It's like, well, they're in the out group. Don't mess with my possessions though. And for yeah. me, when I think about it as far as like property versus people, yeah for me i value that life and the people and that perspective so much more but for other people that have been just maybe more used to their in-group and not having that challenge and feeling like yeah, we own this that's really startling and it feels like such an attack but a statue isn't a life but it feels like so central to people's core and identity and so they use terms like heritage which almost feels like it's untouchable then right yeah and patriot Patriotism. Oh, oh, patriotism. Yeah. And so like when I hear those, I'm like, you're right, though. And so I've heard that a lot about these Confederate statues. Mm -hmm. I'm like, 
gosh, yeah, these have probably been up for since the 1800s. And then I'm like, I learned recently, this is sad, that the Confederacy only existed for like five years. Mm. I would have assumed that would have been decades. But it was like a recent thing. And a lot of those like Confederate statues were built in a couple different um, time periods and they immediately followed civil rights movements. And the latest one was in the 1970s, after the 1960s civil rights movements. But these are not old monuments. These were often symbolic responses to civil rights movements. Mm. I thought, heritage? Wait a minute, like, some of these are about as old as me. Like, these aren't <laughs> built in the 1800s. These were built, like, last week. Like, this is different than heritage. This is symbolic. Mm. What is it symbolizing? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you raise really good really good points that I didn't know that stuff about I have no clue how long the Confederacy existed as a thing I have no clue when those monuments were put up but yeah I guess like Civil War was 1850s maybe into the beginning of the 1860s yeah, 1860s. yeah. so yeah yeah it would make sense that those statues were put up shortly after that I so this is this is potentially <laughs> debatable um <laughs> But I'm thinking about something that is, I think, a part of the fabric of white America. And this is probably going to be pretty controversial, but I'll bring it up anyways. So um, I remember this quote. Uh, I, I can't remember where I heard it or found it, whatever. But this woman was saying that she she lives like between New York and South Carolina. And um she would spend a lot of time in both places and she would have conversations with people and they were like she was black and they were like why would you go to south carolina like why would you spend time in the south as a black woman you know you can stay in new york why subject yourself to the treatment in south carolina and her response was honestly the white people in new york and south carolina feel the same about me the white people in south carolina are just more honest about their feelings wow more open about their feelings yeah and it's like, wow. But I think there's, I mean, I, I'm not trying to speak to that woman's individual lived yeah. experience because she's the only one that can speak to that. But in general, I think there's actually a lot of truth to that. Like, you know, in, in the North of America, I think people who perceive themselves as part of the North and like, you know, pro-civil rights, um, sort of pro-racial equality, I think they feel like, oh, I'm a Northerner. You know, when it comes to the Civil War, I would have been on like the right side, correct side of history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I value humans. I'm not a racist. I'm not, you know, Southern Civil War, KKK. Like they don't associate themselves with any of that stuff. And yet it's like they probably still hold all those same unconscious biases that most of us white Americans hold. Like if you're going to buy a house, are you more likely to buy a house in a neighborhood that's preponderant, like has a preponderance of black people or a preponderance of white people. Yep. Like yeah. all those types of decisions that a lot of white folks like us, especially if you're middle class, you get to make some of those decisions. And we make those decisions often with biases around race and class and things like that. But we don't like to associate ourselves with it. And I think when you watch TV, when you watch movies and stuff like that, if there's a racist area or like a racist group of people, they're always white Southerners. I think our I think our country has part of its identity wrapped up in the racist South. Yeah. 
And I actually, so why I bring this up is because I actually think that's harmful for the overall racial equality. Because I know if I associate as a Southerner and I thought half of my own country viewed me as bad or viewed me as racist or degenerate or whatever, just because I lived in a certain part of the country, that would cause me to sort of have a defensiveness around my own identity, my own yeah. heritage. You doubled down. Yeah, I would dig my heels in. I would feel that now I need to protect myself. I need to stand up for myself and my loved ones because we get looked at and talked about in these negative ways simply because of where we live in the country and the color of our skin. And then the country's past, you know, that I as an individual and my parents and my siblings, my children, we didn't have anything directly to do with slavery or the civil war but we are still held sort of accountable in that way in america because i know for myself when i watch movies and they talk about civil rights or they talk about a racist occurrence or any of that stuff i feel like a hundred percent of the time it's the south that's bad it's yep. the south that's racist and so i think that we people who want people who want racial equality actually do ourselves a disservice if we hold those ideals because then we're causing people who identify as white Southerners to have to be defensive about just their very existence in a way. And I'm not saying that anything that the Confederacy did around racism or the Civil War is good or that I agree with it. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if we add a layer of shame to a whole group of people in our country, that is not helpful for anybody. That's what I'm trying to get at. Wow, Cliff, that's profound. And that like makes the heritage argument make more sense where it's like we're being attacked as a people and we're focusing on a flag or a statue. But like I recognize like I was doing exactly what you said. Like it feels really good to say, hey, then people over there are carrying this flag. And hey, I don't have that flag. I'm good to go. Like yeah. we like a scapegoat. We like to point yeah. the fingers. Yeah. And I think I've heard that same thing about like, yeah, racism's across the country and world. It's just some people are more vocal about it. Mm -hmm. and so continually to say, well, other people are racist. Those people in the South doesn't help anybody take responsibility for their part. Absolutely. And that is ultimately where growth is. So just saying that, yeah, it's people that have a Confederate flag, it's their problem. It's not going to help folks with a Confederate flag reflect. And it's yeah. not going to help anybody else actually look at themselves like you're yeah, right that doesn't forward. help it yeah. doesn't yeah and now i'm not saying in any way that each individual american doesn't get to make up their mind about what each of those symbols means to them i'm not saying that because i think each american each person in the world gets to decide what any symbol or object means to them and what mm -hmm. value it holds to them and i'm fine with that in a lot of ways but I think that that layer of shame that Northerners like to put on Southerners, which is what you're getting at, right? This, this deflection of like, well, yeah, the racist South is the bad part of the country. Like, yeah, that doesn't actually help anybody. So I think white Northerners or those of us who feel like, oh, I'm an advocate for racial justice. It's those other people that are the problem. If we hold that ideal or that idea, we are now preventing ourselves from actually being a part of the solution. Yeah. yeah. You're right on. And this is actually reminding me of like my history class in undergrad. 
And I always thought like, yeah, Civil War was about slavery until I get into like, this was, there was a lot of economic reasons while that war happened. And the North was very much in that industries and the South was very much into farming. And it's like, and that's why I always, I hate when I feel like people are used as pawns where it's like, we're going to be pro rights, but also your economy might be doing a little bit better than us in some ways. And so we're going to use this kind of civil rights kind of token to attack an economy. And so, yeah, I'm against slavery. And I think some of the Northerners probably were too, but also they were attacking a much bigger system that economics and livelihood always go into play. And I think we're hearing that same thing today, where it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to change things because this is our way of life. And like, I've heard this, like there's been music artists changing their name recently, Mm -hmm. like the Dixie Chicks, where it's like, oh, that term Dixie is associated with something. It's a cute little word, but it's not a cute little word for everybody. And the Washington Redskins, they've had that name for almost 100 years, 80 years or so. And there's been lots of dialogue about using people as mascots. Yet NFL's got a lot of money. It's like there's really not a big incentive to change that. But recently, people are like, you know, people have been complaining about this for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And now there's this tipping point where maybe we need to listen. Mm -hmm. Back to the question earlier, is like, who gets to make this decision? And typically, it's been people in power. And more recently, people are like, oh, wait. Even though the Washington Redskins, that doesn't hurt me. Mm -hmm. I don't have an association with it. It is hurting other people. And now that's mattering more which yeah. feels really encouraging. Yeah. And I think I even heard Dolly Parton say something about this where she changed something about her theme park because someone's like, that was offensive. And she's like, oh, I will change it then. I didn't know it. If it offends somebody, maybe you should change it. Mm. I thought, what a simple concept. If it's like, oops, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. I'll change it. Wow. But instead it's like, no, I didn't do that. I didn't mean that. Yeah. That's right. That defensiveness shows up, but but I think being thoughtful about, yeah, this doesn't mean the same thing to me as it does to you. Oh, this is a learning opportunity. Instead, it's, it turns into like a combat zone. Yeah, yeah. And I agree. I think that well, above and beyond everything we've talked about tonight, the piece that I, I would like for myself to have as the final word for my decision making is the effect that this has on other people. So like something might feel innocuous to me or it might not be harmful to me or my family or my loved ones, but if something I do or, or I don't know, something about my life or way of being or my symbols that I present on my clothing, whatever it is, if that is offensive or hurtful, harmful to someone else, then I really want to reflect on that. Like does my ability to wear this thing or present this thing to the world, am I going to choose that right that I have over the fact that this is harmful to someone? I would like to believe that I would say, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to display this anymore. I'm going to find a environmentally friendly way to discard this so that it's not out in the world anymore. I think it gets really hard when that thing is near and dear to your heart though. Yeah. Like imagine if, I'm totally making this up, but imagine if somebody went into a church and said, you know, like there's 500 people in this congregation, they're all sitting in service. And somebody never been in there before walks in and, and kind of 
not shouts like aggressively, but like loudly proclaims like, hey, that symbol up there points to the cross and says, that is offensive and hurtful to me because I have ancestors who were burned on a cross. Wow. Do you think that congregation would take that cross down and say, gosh, that's hurtful to somebody. Let's go find a different symbol. Yeah. I think you highlight how complex this is, where it's not cut and dry, where if it offends somebody, it needs to be gone. Um, but I think about like the concept you bring up, I think about two words, our intention versus impact. Absolutely. And often we think about, well, my intention was good, and I did yeah. not intend that to be harmful or offensive. Yeah. Sometimes having really good intentions does have a really negative impact. Yeah. So I try to apply that to like the monuments and statues and personalize it. And I think about like Germany, um, from what I've learned, they don't have any statues or monuments of Hitler, mm. even though that was a really integral part of their history. And they definitely want to remember that history. That's a big part of their curriculum, but there's not monuments for Hitler um, because they recognize that that is offensive. Um, that was, there was a lot of horrible things that happened. And then I think about the monuments that we have in our country. Mm -hmm. I think that they're on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I think I hear that fear where it's like, well, if we get rid of these Confederate statues, then maybe we're gonna take down the, the founding fathers. Because mm -hmm. some of them had slaves too. Right. It's like, where are we gonna go? And that's where it's like, that's a tough one to navigate. Because in my mind, I'm like, yeah, Confederate statue, probably not okay. But George Washington, probably okay. Even though, yeah, that might not be okay for everybody. Yeah. And I've thought about that in my own religious community, thinking about, um, I did my internship at Brigham Young University, and there was a lot of people talking about um, who the buildings were named after and the monuments mm -hmm. on campus. And even one of the early prophets in our church, Brigham Young, um, he said a lot of things about race and um, slavery. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable, where it's like, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's monuments of somebody that I revere that had a lot of really helpful teachings that I follow and believe, and yet also taught things that I find detestable. Mm -hmm. So is it okay to have a university named after him? And I don't have an answer to that, where it's like, well, he did mostly good things, and some of this stuff ain't so good. Yeah. It's like, is there like a time period where it's like, well, that was so far back, that was in their culture, so we're going to give them a pass, or is it? But today, that's impacting people. We need to look at that. So I think it is complex and nuanced. And for me, yeah. what I would hope is like, let's bring everybody to the table and hear, listen, have a conversation and figure this out together. But instead, what we see is like, well, we're not taking that down. And then the monuments get vandalized. Yeah. And it's like, there's not an easy solution, I don't think. No. no. And so much of this is in this gray area where some of the intentions are really good and yet the harm is clearly there. Yeah. What's the solution that's going to be good for everybody? Yeah. And I don't know the formula for that. Yeah. I don't either. I think you raise a good point in that because I don't think our society is even set up to know how to address that situation. Right. So you have various different groups of people with different perspectives, different feelings, different ideas, and then one of those groups or maybe several of those groups say, hey, this other group is doing this thing that is hurtful to us or uh, is offensive to us. Um, yeah, our society, as far as I know, doesn't have a way currently 
to address that and come to a resolution around how we move forward as one cohesive group. And I think that is part of why there's so much divisiveness just across the board. And it feels like the divisiveness in our country has just been heating up the last 15 years or so. And I think that's part of it is because there are different groups who now have voices that are being somewhat recognized, but we don't have any system, at least not an effective system, to figure out how to move forward with all these disparate views in a way that is sort of a compromise or, or the best approximation of a healthy next step in that, you know? Like, man, Cliff, you need to get on that, like create that system. <laughs> Because you, I mean, you do such a nice job hitting home, like that cross example, where it's like, Christ is my savior. That is the Messiah. And to think about someone saying, well, I'm offended by that. Actually, that did happen to me. I uh, had international students living with me, and I had some from Saudi Arabia. And I had a photo of Jesus Christ in a portrait on my wall. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you can't have a picture of deity on a wall. That's blasphemous. Mm. Like oh shoot like this is my home like that image is really special to me Mm -hmm. a helpful reminder and i want that in my space but for him he felt really uncomfortable here he was a guest in my home and i probably didn't handle that well where it's like well it's my house like my rules Uh but that really does speak to me where it's like what's really sacred to me might be really detrimental to somebody else and it's easier for me where like BYU, I wasn't an alum there. I didn't go there as a student. I don't have as much invested. But if someone's had generations at BYU, that'd be really hard to entertain that. Oh, yeah. Or in my town, Pocatello, they're having dialogue right now about changing the mascot of the local high school, which is currently the Indians. Yeah. Right next to the reservation. And they've said for years where it's like, you know, it's time to retire that. We're not a mascot. And they're starting to have that dialogue now. Mm. I lived here for generations and we were all Pocatello Indians. I might be like, no, like that. My grandfather went there. I built that yeah. school. Yeah. But if I'm not invested, I'm like, yeah, we need to change it. Yeah. And so I think we forget that standpoint where if you grew yeah. up with these things, there is an attachment and it is difficult. And I have compassion for that. And things probably need to change for the better. Yeah. But I think we skip that part. We start yelling at people and attacking yeah. and say, how dare yeah. you? Without yeah. the like, oh man, this would be really tough for you. Yeah. Um, it's not maybe not tough for me, but it could be really tough for you. And oh, I'm so grateful that you're willing to look at this and make this better. Thank you. Like we don't hear that ty- type of language. No. Yeah. Yeah. We're so insulated in our social groups around our views and things like that. And uh, I was talking to a woman who was from South America. This was years ago, and she said. <laughs> Oh, it still cracks me up. She said that she was so confused by American culture because the things that we that in America we deem like not appropriate to discuss in public. Like, can you think off the top of your head, like what growing up, like what did your parents say, like, oh, Cameron, we don't talk about that in public. Like, what were those things? Politics, money, and religion. 
Exactly, right? Politics, money, and religion, right? And and so this woman, she was from Guyana, and that's in South America, which I didn't know at the time, because most people, I think, hear that, and they think it's in Africa. So she said that where she was from, grew up, like, you would hear people talking about politics and religion just everywhere on the street. Wow. But what you wouldn't hear people talking about is their parents' divorce, their mental health issues, their relationship conflict within their family, Whoa. because it wasn't, at least this, the setting, the context that she grew up in, it wasn't considered appropriate to discuss those sorts of family issues publicly. Whoa. And I, I've always, that's always just like blown my mind because in a way, why does American culture say you shouldn't talk about politics or religion? Like those are core tenets of who we as people are. Yeah. And and so in a sense, it's like, no wonder we can't have effective conversations with each other right now because we've like grown up and chosen to grow up in a way where we've taught ourselves, oh, you can't discuss politics. And guess what? For people who are religious, religion is directly related to a lot of their values. Yeah. And the yeah. way people vote and feel about politics directly yeah. linked to their values yep. so if you can't talk about politics and you can't talk about religion then no wonder we can't have discourse about this stuff today yeah and not only that like our own political views and religious views i think are stunted too because we don't have the opportunity to learn from other people yeah and to like benefit from their religious views or political views in more complex and nuanced ways. So not only do we not grow very much, we're not yeah. able to dialogue when there are differences. Yeah, yeah. I think most of us can say those big three. It's like, yeah, those are taboo. And it's like, now I think we're seeing the product of those being off the table is it just gets farther and farther apart and our own beliefs are just kind of small. We're holding on to them really tight, Yeah. but why are we holding on to them? Is yeah. it because they're ours, we own them? Yeah. Or because we've been able to grow those. And I think about, like you said, this country was founded on freedom of religion. And the yeah. first, the first amendment is not guns. That's the second one. The first one is sharing those views freely. Mm-hmm. And yet it's like, we've kind of put muzzles on ourselves where it's like, but not these really important topics yeah. that are like the backbone of our country. We can't talk about those, how we support our families, what we believe in and how we're going to govern ourselves. We can't yeah. talk about those. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of silly. Feels silly to me, anyways, as we talk about it. And I think that if 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 myself or anybody else looks from the outside in at a at a a topic, like okay, let's say a Confederate flag, you know, from the outside looking in, I'm like, it is. I think it makes sense that it's offensive to people of color, especially if you're African-American, especially if you have ancestors that are slaves, right? And obviously my opinion doesn't matter because I'm a white man and I'm like sort of outside all that, but it's very obvious to me how the Confederate flag would be offensive to people. And I look at it and very easily say like, yeah, let's just get rid of it. Let's just get rid of it. But I think when when you as in myself or anybody else looks at something and it feels super obvious and easy and simple, straightforward, but the problem doesn't get resolved in a manner that's easy and simple and straightforward. That's because it's not as clear cut as it looks and feels from the outside. And that I think is what you and I have been articulating the last little bit is like, if you look at something and it's like, duh, there's an obvious solution, just do X and get it over with. We all move on. 
But if we as a, as a society or a group, whatever it is, can't just execute X and move on, that's because it's not as simple as it appears from the outside. And I know this goes back to that example I gave about, imagine you're in a church with a cross up front and someone came in and said, that's offensive. Like you're not going to take it down in 10 minutes and be no. like, okay, let's put our heads together and find a new symbol. Like it, nope. it ain't going to happen. And that's because it's not that simple and straightforward. It's not. I think that's the same thing with the Confederate flag, about these monuments, Southern culture, heritage, all that sort of stuff. And I think, we cannot figure out as a country, we cannot figure out how to move forward with this because the way we've constrained ourselves on discourse and how divisive we are. Yeah. Gosh, Cliff, like I always go into these chats thinking like, I think I got this figured out. And then I leave feeling like, ah, crap, like I ain't that different. And I, <laughs> yeah. and I, I haven't really thought about that experience with my Saudi student and that, that portrait of yeah. my savior. Yeah. Like I did not give his opinion a second thought No, yeah. because I thought about, I was really focused on my rights yep. and my rights are, this is my religion. This is my home. I get to put up whatever I want. Right. And I think I hear that a lot today. Like these are yes. my rights. And it's like, yeah, yeah. that's half of the equation. Yeah. And the other side of rights are what are our responsibilities? Yeah. And I think if I could do that over, I'd think about like, how could I make this a pleasant and safe place for my guest? Yeah, from a different culture, and could it be okay to maybe take a portrait down while he lives in my house for three months? Um, because really, yeah. my belief system is not a portrait on a wall; it's mm. in my heart, it's in my core, it's how I live my life. And so, was I living Christ-like by keeping a picture of Christ up on the wall? Maybe, maybe not. In that situation, and that might be a different answer for different people. But yeah. as I think about like what my Savior would do he might take his picture down in that, in that moment and yeah. think about like, yeah, here's somebody I love and care about. Let me listen to them and support them. But often where I think we're, we're so focused on, but these are my rights. Yeah. And it's like, well, with those rights that we have and with the privileges that I enjoy and many of us enjoy, there is a responsibility with that. Yeah. And for me, ultimately, I, I think about, maybe this is in religious terms, like we're probably going to be judged more on what we did with those opportunities, Man. with that responsibility, instead of how well did you <laughs> fight for those rights? It's like, what did you do to make people's lives better? Like yeah. how responsible were you with all the things that you were given? Gosh, Cliff, you always do this to me. Now I'm like, got more work to do. It's not as simple as you need to fix these obvious issues over there, people, and we're good. Yeah. I mean, this is in my own house. This is, yep my own self, things I hadn't even yeah. thought about that. Yeah. It's so easy to say other people are the issue, yep. Yep. but it, it really is within all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Darn Cliff. <laughs> we think we have answers sometimes and then we dig into it and it's like, Oh yeah. <laughs> we have no idea what to do. We don't. And I think that's why I appreciate this space is I honestly, I don't have this figured out. I don't yeah. have the answers. Yeah. Some things seem obvious. And then as you think about yeah. it, it's like, well, if it was obvious, this would have been done a long time ago. Yeah. Um, it isn't. And then when you think about situations, like how could you relate to that? It's like, yeah. oh yeah, there's no way I would be giving that up yeah. this easily, even though it's clearly harming people. Yeah. This, yeah. This is much dif more difficult to do. And, and I hope people listening to this will have compassion for us 
mm-hmm. and our limitations. And yep. How we're trying to think through this because yeah. this is not prescripted or like we did a lot no. of homework. This is like, oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Uh-oh, well, let me think about that some more. Yeah. And I think that's what I would want people to do is just to dive in and not have it be polished. And yeah. I feel like you got to know it all before you can start to learn because it's, yeah. it's felt messy for me, but it feels like mm-hmm. this is how we are learning and growing. Exactly. Yep. Right. The process, I don't think is going to feel comfortable. It's not going to be pretty. And if we wait until it feels comfortable and we wait until it feels pretty, we'll never do it. But fumbling, yeah, fumbling through this is going to be our journey of growth. Can you imagine like looking back on what we said like in a month or in a year and being like, oh, can you believe you said that? You thought you had some of this figured out. And I hope yeah. in a year we look back at this and be like, that was kind of weak. That was yeah. really limited. Because for yeah. me, that wouldn't be like, we got to delete those. It's like, that's where we were. Yeah. Um, and I hope we're better in a few yeah. months and in a year yeah. from now. Well, I'm sure that'll happen because I already feel that way about myself, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. And the further I go back in time, the more sort of saddened I am by some of the beliefs and views I used to hold, some of the behaviors I engaged in. And yeah, I, I know better now, but that, I think that's the journey. Like it's the journey. what matters is that we're trying to grow so that tomorrow we are further along than where we are today. Cause at the end of the day, that's the best we can do is continue to try to move forward i love it well said we'll wrap up there and we'll uh pick this up again next time cliff thanks for joining Sounds me good yeah good to be here see you cameron hey thanks for listening please remember to rate and subscribe i know you might be facing some issues in your life or know someone who is issues like anxiety challenges in dealing with emotions or other compulsive behaviors like unwanted pornography And I know it's tough to talk to people about problems. Difficult to stare those obstacles down that we face in life and to really know how to deal with them. It's hard to know what to say and when to say it. And then when that moment you finally reach out to family and friends happens, sometimes it falls flat. I haven't found many programs teaching effective strategies like mindfulness, how to improve relationships, and ways to address unwanted pornography viewing through research-supported principles. So whether you simply want to help with a problem like unwanted pornography, difficulty responding to emotions, or just want to understand the world of someone struggling with porn a little better, head over to lifeafterpornography.com and get in on the next training. There you'll learn the exact same strategies individuals addicted to pornography used to transform their lives by implementing principles from evidence-based treatment shown effective in research for reducing unwanted pornography viewing. You'll learn the secrets the myths, the enemies to recovery, and the LAP framework for dealing with unwanted porn viewing that we call WAVE. If that's something that interests you, click the link in the description, or just head over to lifeafterpornography.com. I'm Dr. Cameron Staley. See you on the inside.